0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, if you're using the Bible that's in the pew or chair, it's page 978. We'll begin reading with chapter 4, verse 25. The last of our uh, studies on the tongue, from what some of you have told me, this will be a relief. <laughs> Not that you haven't benefited, but it just—it is always convicting for all of us to talk about this subject. I'll be focusing first on the subject of anger, which we started last week in Proverbs, and I thought we would speak a little bit about the counterpart command here in Ephesians, and then we'll also talk about verse 29, where he speaks of our words giving grace to those that hear, uh, which, so actually it is the life-giving tongue, but it's kind of a finishing of last week. So, I think it's appropriate, of course, that if you're going to clean up a stream uh, you say this stream has been polluted terribly. You've got to start stop the pollution, and then you make sure all the way of the the, the uh, obstacles that were standing in the way of the fresh fountain that supplied the stream are all flowing. Okay, so you've got to stop the pollution and open up the rich fountain. And the context here is our newness in Christ; that we have been recreated in Christ. You see the context in verses twenty three and twenty four. We, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is so far from saying this is what you need to do now. It's saying this is what you are now. There is a new self that has been created in Christ. And it is after the image of God. Now, that is hugely encouraging, and it does away with every excuse we might want to bring to the table. When you're talking new creation, then all of my personal whining about that's the way I am, this is just the way I was raised, this the habits I have, they're out the door. You're a new creation. You've been created in Christ Jesus, a new self after his image. The possibilities are amazing, glorious. And we must always be vigorous in our effort to conform our ways to His will because we are, are just putting on this new self that has been created. So it's in that context that these commands occur, okay? In the context of living out our new life. The, the, uh, as I mentioned in a sermon I preached Friday night one old writer says that we are it's like we have a forge that produces sin as human beings. Just a forge that is hammering out sin. Well, Christ not only has come and destroyed that forge. Not that we're sinless, but that dominating control that sin had. Is, has been destroyed in our lives and a new fountain of holiness and goodness has been planted not just on the surface, but Jesus says in John 7, in your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's encouraging. From the inside out, planted at the deepest part of my being, the Holy Spirit is producing good. That is encouraging. And it is challenging. Because it means that I can't ever make an excuse again. God will do great things in my life by His grace. And you're like, if that's the introduction, I don't want to hear the sermon. Okay, verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So you don't just obey God by stopping to steal, you obey God by then providing for others. Lord, bless this reading to our understanding. And as we seek to look into the meaning of what you have given us, Lord, uh, may our lives be conformed to your ways. May we put on the new self that has been created in Christ Jesus, for it is in his name that we pray, amen. First, I want to start with the anatomy of anger And this is pulling off from some things we said last week. But we start with the anatomy of anger. Remember what we said, that God himself is slow to anger. God is a patient God. Psalm 103 verse 8 is a great summary statement. This statement is said in many forms in the Old Testament. It's like a formula almost that God uses to say, you want to know what I'm like? Here it is. And he says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Notice the connection. Mercy, grace, love, patience. All together. So that grace and love and mercy cannot Uh, If if God is that, it is necessary then that he is patient and slow to anger. It is a part of his love. That's why the very first thing that is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient. Isn't that interesting? Paul, he's thinking, what's the first thing I want people to know about love? It's patient. And the word is long Suffering or slow to anger. It's the same word that describes God in the Old Testament. It literally means long anger. And it's interesting because it's a verb, but we don't have that verb in in English. So literally, it it would read, love, patience. You know, take patience as a verb. That's what love does. It patience. In every situation, it patience. That's what love is. The first thing he wants us thinking about love. And so the anatomy of being an angry person, given to anger, is ungodliness. It's unlike God. That's why it is so wrong, so evil. It flies in the face of who God is, that we would be angry with one another. And the irony is that it is connected to pride and self So that here's God, the infinite, glorious God of unlimited capacity and majesty, dignity, and authority, and He is slow to anger. But oh, we become so puffed up and pompous and full of ourselves that we are going to be angry. Just think about that. How unlike God, unlimited in His glory and slow to anger, and we've got, we're just little peons jumping around like little kings and queens and getting mad over the least little thing. And, of course, you think, who do we think we are? Who do I think I am? And, of course, many, many times, perhaps most of the time, our prideful anger, this vortex of self, is really connected to a desperate fear, a hiding of our real fears Uh, It could be connected to deep unresolved pain, a covering for a whole mess of things going on in our hearts. But because there's not been an open and honest dealing with suffering perhaps, and because our suffering has been connected to unbelief and we've not depended on God in our suffering, we have a coping mechanism to hide and run and deal with it through anger. No less selfish, no less harmful and destructive for those around us. The final product is this vortex of self and pride, wherever it is coming from. John Eady, a commentator, uh, wrote in the 19th century, has a, a wonderful little statement here. He says, "...if a mere trifle puts you into a storm of fury, so excitable as to fall into frequent fits of ungovernable passion and lose control of speech or action... Urged by an irascible temper, and this is the phrase I want you to think about. They're ever resenting fancied affronts and injuries. That is, imagined offenses and injuries. And that's what we do in our anger, you know, just sensitive to any little thing, even making them up almost. The least little word or thing can stir an angry person up ever-resenting, fancied affronts and injuries. So this vortex creates a huge self and a tiny, tiny God in the end. It's not His glory we're concerned with, it's ours. Our glory, we think, has been fundamentally injured and ruined. We carry a bruised soul that strikes out at the smallest things that are interpreted as attacks and affronts to our dignity. And of course, as we said, that's not the sign of strength. A man who controls himself is like a mighty warrior, the proverb says, and a man who loses himself constantly is like a city that's just broken down. It has no walls. It's defenseless. And so, of course, the renewal in Christ and experiencing God's love and comfort and forgiveness and unburdening our hearts and our suffering before Him, these are critical things to heal us. We've sinned and we've been sinned against. We've responded wrongly to so much of the sin against us and we've formed ways to cope with that that are not at all good. And, it, and sometimes it can be radical. It has all kinds of... Spec, uh, the spectrum is wide in this. But God, we read from Paul in 1 Timothy, is the blessed God. And that word blessed means happy. Have you ever thought of God as happy? John Piper points this out a lot. He's not a morose God. He's not a God that's touchy. It's not a like a, a father that's always in a bad mood, and you have to walk around with eggshells because you never know when you'll set him off. You know, oh, Dad had a bad day at work. Don't say anything to Dad tonight. You know that kind. Of, God's never like that with us. He's a God of infinite joy, a joy that seeks to pour that same joy into our lives. So Jesus says, I say these things so that your joy would be full, so that you would know my joy. He has it. He has infinite joy. Even in regard to evil, when he considers what he is going to do with that evil and how he is going to govern those things for good, he has joy. He has joy. And so a joy in Him and His love is incompatible with an angry heart. That's some of the anatomy of anger. In another direction, it means that we're not understanding His sovereignty and His love and His wisdom and His control over the situations that we face. His sovereignty in giving us the very relationships that we have and the very struggles and the very conflicts that we have. And to embrace that, and say, "This is what God has given me, and He means for me to show forth his glorious character in the midst of it. I was talking to one of our young members one time about the problem of suffering, and a reader and I told this I asked this person in as you read books what is a, Have you ever read a good book that doesn't have conflict, doesn't have evil in it? person said, well, you know, little children's books, yeah, but not a real book you could sink your teeth into. And there are many, many reasons, of course, that we don't understand of why God has allowed suffering. But one thing is that he apparently loves to see his people struggling against their own sin and the sin around them and to be glorious heroes manifesting God's character in very difficult circumstances. He loves that. I hate it. (laughs) And I have chafed under that notion. But I believe that God loves to see heroic love lived out in the most difficult circumstances. And obviously, that's what his own son did. And his own son manifested his love. Even when he was in such duress, he didn't utter threats. He asked the Lord to forgive them. He had a benevolent heart even toward those who were persecuting him. In so doing, even as he was suffering his father's wrath, he pleased the father because he manifested, my son is slow to anger. My son is slow to anger. Even with this horrible injustice done against him, he continued to show my character in the, on the cross itself. Wow. Well, let's look then at the danger of anger as this passage looks at it. Now... This is a difficult passage, verse twenty-five, because it begins with a command. It, it's really an imperative in the original language. And so, you could read it and say, yeah, "It says right here, be angry." You know, um, most commentators would call call it what what is in the literature a concessive imperative. That is, it you would read it more in terms of how the Greek would be interpreted. If you are angry, do not sin. It's a permissive thing in that sense. Now, some would say that this is an indicator that we can have righteous anger. Uh, As one would write, we're God's imitators. Anger cannot be excluded any more than in God himself or even in the Messiah because Christ became angry at the Pharisees in Mark chapter 3 verse 5. And certainly, as John Eady again says... That wrath against a brother draws judgment on an angry man, but indignation on behalf of others is one of the common bonds by which society is held together. So there is that element of discussion that's floated around this verse. Is there some uh, mention of that righteous anger? And yet then the warning that follows it. But if you are in righteous anger, be careful that you don't fall into sin. I would lean with a commentator who's by the name of Lincoln who would say, really, in the context, that's not a good... I don't, I don't think he's dealing with that subject right here, righteous anger. Um, he would translate it this, this way. Angers to be avoided at all costs, but if for whatever reason you do get angry, then refuse to indulge such anger so that you do not sin. That's a great interpretation, I think. Again, anger is to be avoided at all costs. But if for whatever reason you do get angry, then refuse to indulge such anger so that you do not sin. Because verse 27 shows us how dangerous it is. It gives opportunity for the devil. It shows in verse uh, 26 that you must not let it continue in any way. And then anger is one of the words mentioned in verse 31 that just absolutely is forbidden. Let all anger. So in the context, it's kind of hard to think that he's talking about righteous anger, but just the general idea that you must be so careful with this anger. So he says that the reason he says L- don't let the sun go down on your anger is that the end of the day was regarded as sundown, the beginning of the, the next day. And so uh, the idea, of course, is not that if you lived uh, at the Arctic Circle... During the summer, you could be angry all the time, you know, because the sun doesn't set. Not to be taken literally. sense, uh, the right, sun had not set. Okay. Uh, but uh, from the Old Testament, for instance, in Deuteronomy, the goods taken from a poor man in pledge must be returned by the end of the day. Or if you uh, owe wages, they must be paid by the end of the day. So there's that sense that anything critical and important... Uh, should not wait any longer, and basically the idea, of course, is that it should be uh, it should be stopped as soon as possible. That's the idea. Do not let it continue. It is dangerous, and do not allow it in any way to uh, take hold of your of your life. <clears throat> and especially because of what he says in verse 27, give no opportunity for the devil. The little Greek word is tapos. It means a place. And NIV translates it well, I think, in a foothold. Don't let him get in the door. Don't let his foot you know, get break through the door to get into your life. Some would translate it an, as here an opportunity O'Brien says, don't give the devil a chance to exert his influence. Anger can give the devil an opportunity to cause strife within the life of the individual and the community. And it's interesting that later in chapter 6, he talks about warfare with the devil. and, And here, specifically at the point of anger and impatience, the warfare is brought in. That There's an anticipation of that mention of the warfare at the end. And so John Edie again, I quote him because he's so rich at this point. Satan has sympathy. Hear this. Satan has sympathy with a spiteful and malignant spirit. It's so like his own. Envy, cunning, and malice are the preeminent feelings of the devil. And if wrath gains the empire of the heart, it lays the heart open to him. And to those fiendish passions, those old language, fiendish passions, which are identified with his presence and operations. And to give him a place, but in one point, and he may speedily cover the whole platform of the soul." And so, here in Ephesians and in other writings connected to the Judeo-Christian history, indulgence in anger is seen as giving free scope to the devil. Mitten says this, the writer thinks in terms of a personal power of evil, which is pictured as lurking around angry people ready to exploit the situation. Anger is a kind of fifth column available for cooperation with the enemy. Hopefully we are shaken some as to what Paul is saying here. You want to take your life and say, here, uh, Satan, have a handle on my whole life. Get hold of me here. Then give yourself to anger. You want to put it in his hands, Paul says, then give rein freely to anger. And then the danger in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Then of course he goes right into bitterness and wrath and anger. It's it, it doesn't seem possible almost that we could bring grief to the Holy Spirit. How, how? But this is the communication to us to show us the intimacy with which the Holy Spirit is in uh, with that we have with the Holy Spirit. The work of His, of bringing us together, His unlimited desire to see us show the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to pour love into each other's lives. And when anger governs, it grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves Him. It grieves Him because of His love for you. You're not concerned. There are a lot of people that have been hurt all across this nation with their children, but we are grieved and we are hurt because we know little Mason. We know the brooks. They're close to us. They're friends of ours. And it kills us. It wipes us out. And that's what he's saying here, in a sense. Holy Spirit is intimate with you. He cares about you. It grieves him. Don't grieve him by engaging in these things. But then, the tongue, the power of the tongue for good. There's the danger of the tongue, but then the power of the tongue for good. So he says in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So there's this guard, there's this bridle. And it's as though you have put a sentinel up, you know, and you're watching every single thing that comes out of your mouth. And you're making sure that nothing comes out that's garbage. Corruption, filth, rottenness is a translation. And the idea is, of course, that this is the sewer. Okay, If you want to picture it like that, don't let your mouth be a sewer. Now you think, well, I hadn't said a cuss word in years. And that's not what he's talking about, of course. It can be a sewer just by the edginess of it or by the lack of kindness, the lack of gracious words. It's the same idea as in verse... Uh, 28, where the thief, you, you still are a thief in Paul's view, in Scripture's view, if you only stop stealing. If you're not giving, you're still the thief. You're only healed when you stop stealing and you are working and laboring so that now you're giving away to those who don't have. And so in this way, it's not simply that you are keeping corrupting talk whether it's anger or lies or gossip or backbiting or slander, whatever it is. But your tongue must be used for good. Always thinking, is it building the other person up? Is it fitting the occasion? Is it now by God's mercy and kindness that I'm imparting grace to those that hear? And I, I like to think of, I think of this word grace in its larger meaning. That we are instruments by God's uh, mercy to convey grace to one another. That's why I would say in in terms of the means of God's grace that certainly it is the word and prayer and and the sacraments. But there's a huge means of God's grace as we give ourselves to each other and speak the gospel to each other and live the gospel out before each other. But there's so much good that we can do to each other with our words. so Powerful. It is, it does have the power of death, Proverbs says, but it has the power of life also. The power of life. Memorize verse 29. Okay? Let me see how many promise to re- Okay? <laughs> I've never done this. How many promise to memorize 429? I see those hands. <laughs> 429. That's a great one. Apply that to your heart. Meditate on it. Break it down. Think through it. Ask that God would make it real in your life, that you would be a person who is building others up at the right occasion and giving grace to them. Let me just read from Proverbs passages that talk about the tongue's blessing. If you want to turn to Proverbs, you can, but uh, or take these down. But I start I in chapter 12 of Proverbs, and I'm just going to read through them. I've got them listed, so I'm not going to really go uh, leave time to turn necessarily. If you don't know where Proverbs is and you've got the pew Bible and want to follow along, you start on page 536. But in chapter 12, verse 25... Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. See what you can do? (laughs) By God's grace, chapter 13, verse 14, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Chapter 15, verse 4, A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit tree of life or breaking the spirit. Chapter 15, verse 23, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good is it? (laughs) Verse 30 of that chapter, the light of the eyes rejoices the heart and good news refreshes the bones. And we have the best news to be speaking constantly into each other's lives. The good news of Jesus Christ. Chapter 16, verse 24. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Skipping over to chapter 25, verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Hmm. Verse 25 of that chapter, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And, oh, brothers and sisters, that's what your comfort and encouragement in speaking the sweetness of Christ into one another's lives is. Sometimes we feel like we're just shut out in the darkness, and here comes the light from a brother or sister. Verse 27, I'm sorry, chapter 27, verse 17, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And then that great statement in the chapter on the uh, godly woman in chapter 31, the woman who fears the Lord, verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. It's encouraging as we begin that he is creating us a new, he has created us a new self after his image. And isn't it encouraging that that must Mean. It must mean that we will bear His image and be slow to anger. We will bear His love and be patient people. There is a time for righteous anger. There is a time for us to be upset with what is going on in the world to hurt people. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But so much of our anger is not that at all. It's personal things that have been done to us. Oh, may God make us like himself. And if you are outside of Christ, you may be governed by angry words, you may be governed by other things that have kind of formed an idol in your life, have truly formed an idol, and you would have to say, God is not the love of my heart. He's not what I depend on. He's not what I'm living for. God is the one who made your mouth. He made every part of your being and He knows how to what would make you happy. He knows how you're to live and He knows how you're to live wisely and beneficially for yourself and those around you. And He knows intimately your sin beyond what you could imagine. And He still has given His Son to die for sinners and offers Him to you so that you might receive forgiveness. So that you might find intimacy with God and so that you might be recreated in the image of God Himself. Will you trust Him now, this morning? Let us pray. Lord, thank You that You renew us from the inside out. You change our heart. And as Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of that which is, that fills the heart. Lord, we confess, I confess, within my own family, Lord, I confess with others, and many here, we all have to confess, Lord, the misuse of our tongue. Oh, Lord, and it only shows what is in my heart. Lord, enable us to put on the new self created in your image. Enable us, Lord, to be filled with your goodness and joy and love, to seek you out, to feast upon you, that you might clean up the pollution of our heart. You've broken that forge and, oh, Lord, there are pieces scattered everywhere of remaining sin. And we ask you to come and continue to cleanse us and purify us and comfort us and heal us and fill us. Make us whole. Bring about shalom in our hearts, Lord, so that we're not a desperate vortex striking out, but that we are fountains of life and our words show that. Lord, you are our only hope. We thank you for what you are and will do in our lives. You are doing and you will do. We rest in you through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my life. Come with blissful ray Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away